You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday for worship at 8.30 or 10.45. Find out more at asburybosier.org. Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning uh, and get to share some of God's good news for us. Uh, This morning, we're continuing our series, uh, Power and Passion in Search of Resurrection. And over these six weeks, we're looking at six different characters in Scripture that reveal to us who Jesus is, but they ask us how Jesus' death and resurrection make possible a new way of life for us. So far, we've looked at the story of Pontius Pilate, who is the one that the Jews send Jesus to to condemn him to death, to to have him crucified, and the role that Pontius Pilate plays, uh, especially that conversation with Jesus that you heard, but then making the decision uh, for him to be crucified. And then last week, you heard the story of Jesus Barabbas, this, this insurrectionist, this violent leader who the crowds choose over Jesus the Messiah which is all very interesting that they make that choice. Today, we're hearing the story of Joseph of Arimathea, which in itself is a very interesting story, although some of you might be like, who is that? So we're going to get into that this morning. Let's hear the word of God from John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus though a secret one, because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about a hundred pounds." They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices in linen cloths, according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In a former life, and I'm going back a good 20 years, I worked for a very short period of time for an environmental company in Shreveport. And basically my job, and my only job, it was a fairly simple task, was to put together these big, thick environmental reports that the lab technicians and the environmental specialists and things that know things about science would gather all this information and they would give it to me and they'd tell me kind of how they wanted it laid out in this report. So there'd be tables and graphs and all this descriptive nonsense that goes into those things. And then we would send it off to the client and to the environmental agency and all these different things once it was finished. I hated doing that. But sometimes you got to do what you got to do to pay the bills. And so for about three months, four months, that's, that's what I did. But what happened three months into that was two or three of their scientific people quit. And so the boss, the owner of the company, came to me and he said, you know, you, we know you're really good at doing this, but would you, would you mind going out to some job sites with some of our science people 
and help them gather the information, and then you can come back and, and kind of do the report part of it. And so for, for three or four weeks, I would go out to landfills and, and places like that. I learned, <laughs> I learned things about landfills that I, I couldn't care less. Um, and and spend, you spend all day walking around, you know, and you measure this, and you do this, and you dig up a piece of dirt, and you put it in a cup, and I'm like, okay. Um, so I did that for a while. Uh, and for a while, it was interesting, but then I was like, okay, th- this is not what you hired me to do. And so one day, I went into work, uh, and they decided that it would be a fantastic idea uh, to have me go into their lab, uh, where, their, where their building is, and do stuff with chemicals. Uh, I'm not sure what it was I was doing. They gave me like six, do this, you know, step one through six, do this, do this. And I was like, okay. So they left me alone in their lab with all these chemicals that I know nothing about. And I'm like, okay, I guess that's what I'll do. By the end of the day, as I was driving home, I noticed that there were several holes starting to appear in the clothes that I was wearing that day. Because the chemicals had obviously spilled on me. I don't know how I didn't end up in the ER, uh, or at least have to go to the hospital with medical burns or some, chemical burns or, or something, because they decided that was a good idea. So anyway, I was in my early 20s, and I was naive enough and also dumb enough to call my boss. And so I, I very politely explained to him that, you know, that this isn't, uh, his name was Brad, this is not uh, what you hired me to do. I, I'm glad to help out. But when I got home today, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to throw my clothes away because they have holes in them now from the chemicals that you wanted me to play with today. And so it might be better if I went back to doing the things that I was actually hired to do. And I was as polite as I could be, and he listened, and he said, oh, you know, you're right, that, that is what you were hired to do. And he was very patient and, and listened. I went into work the next day, and I was like, all right, we've got a handle on this. I can go back to doing what I was doing, and then I was fired. So um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm like driving home going, well, what is happening? Um, I quickly learned that sometimes uh, opening your mouth has consequences, uh, whether we're aware of them or not. And I've also learned that sometimes the best thing for us to do, even if we know that we are right, is to shut up, is just to keep it to ourselves and move on and make decisions that we need to make and not even say anything to anybody. And so in our scripture for today, we find two people, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And their appearances in the Gospels are fleeting at best. We don't know a great deal about them, and the temptation when we don't know much about people in Scripture is to fill in the blanks, right? Surely they were this, and maybe they were this, and this must have been what had happened. But it's hard to do that. What we do know is that both of them had an instrumental part to play in the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. And we know that they chose to say nothing. They waited until Jesus is dead before they take any kind of action to do anything at all. Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned in all four Gospels. Now, typically when that happens, it means something is kind of important, that all four of the Gospel writers mention something. So we can assume that Joseph has an important part to play in the story. He's the one that comes forward to take away Jesus' body. We know that he's a wealthy man. 
We know that he serves on the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish council that would have met, the the higher council, the church administrative council, if you want to look at it that way. This is the council that makes the big decisions. And not just is he a member of this council, he is a prominent member of this council. Now, there's a legend about Joseph, and when you get into some other Christian writings to try to figure things out, it gets really sketchy really quickly because we can't verify much of anything. But there's a legend that suggests that maybe Joseph is related to Jesus in some way because typically in Jewish custom, it would be an older male relative that would have the job of taking down the body and burying it if that was appropriate. So maybe there's something to that. Matthew's gospel tells us various things about these different groups that exist in Jesus' day. And he tells us a couple of things that stand out when we think about Joseph's story. Number one, Matthew tells us it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, these would have been harsh words for someone like Joseph for sure. Matthew also tells us the story of the rich young ruler, the man who says, I've loved God and I'm loving my neighbor. What am I missing? And Jesus says, go and take everything you own and sell it and give it to the poor. And he walks away. He can't do that. Both of these stories in Matthew's gospel are going to speak on a deep level to someone like Joseph because Joseph has everything to lose. He's got money, he's got wealth, he's got power, he's got influence. And this message of Christ, regardless of who he believes Christ to be, goes against everything that he has built up for himself. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Joseph is a good man, he's a keeper of the law, who has the courage to go to Pilate, knowing that the last Jew that went to Pilate and asked for anything at all got put on a cross. That takes courage. Joseph also has the concern, being Jewish, of touching a dead body which would make him unclean. And we know from the story that this is within hours of the Sabbath. So there's a really small window of time for him to be made clean again and perform the rituals that would be necessary to do that. Mark is the one who introduces us to the Roman centurion at the foot of the cross. The one who looks up at Jesus after he has died and says, surely this was the Son of God. Another really unlikely person to believe in who Jesus is and choose to be his disciple. And then we get to John's gospel that we read from this morning, and we have this image of Joseph and Nicodemus anointing Jesus' body with a hundred pounds of spices. And this ought to remind us of a story earlier in John's Gospel where Mary, the woman, the sinful woman, goes into the feast where they're having a meal and she anoints Jesus' body with this expensive nard or perfume. And Jesus looks at those who are criticizing and saying, who, who is this? And Jesus says, she has done what is right. Preparing his body for burial. An act of compassion since he had just raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. She performs this act of great compassion and mercy towards Jesus, which is also what Joseph does in this act of going and taking his body. Now, Nicodemus is in a similar situation to that of Joseph. 
He too has to choose between worldly things, the respect, the influence, the power, the money that he has, and true discipleship. In John chapter 3, a chapter we're, we're all familiar with, we see Nicodemus go at night, so not publicly but in private, and he says to Jesus, and his, his introduction to Jesus tells us a lot about who Nicodemus is, even this early. He goes to Jesus and says, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. So Nicodemus, who is part of the same council, goes to Jesus, albeit at night, and he says, I know that there is something about you that can only be from God. Now, whether Nicodemus follows up on that faith is a whole different issue because he's got so much to lose. But even in the beginning, his first conversation with Jesus, Nicodemus says, I know, surely you are the Son of God. But Nicodemus has a problem. What he can't wrestle with, what he can't deal with is this difference between worldly things and heavenly things. These things that I have built up for myself in this kingdom of God that you are proclaiming that goes against all of those things. And Jesus explains to him, you must not be born just of water, but also of spirit. We had a baptism at the 830 service. We must be born again, not just physically, but spiritually of water and of spirit in order to understand God's kingdom. Nicodemus reappears in John chapter 7, where the temple police go to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they say, never before has anyone spoken like this. Even those who aren't supposed to look at Jesus and they say, there's something about this man. We haven't heard anyone speak with such authority before, but listen to their reply. Surely you have not been deceived too, have you? You get the tone coming through there. This is deception. Don't be one of these people that have been deceived. But then Nicodemus jumps in. He seizes the moment. Our law does not judge people without first giving them a hearing, does it? Nicodemus is hoping that the law that he's built his life around will protect Jesus. And listen to what they say. Surely you are not from Galilee as well, are you? In other words, the the people on this council with Nicodemus and with Joseph, they make it really clear. Either you're with us or you're against us. Are you one of these that have been deceived by all this mumbo-jumbo about a kingdom of God? Have you been deceived? Are you from Galilee as well? Nicodemus is hoping that the law will do what surely the law was intended to do, but it does not. And in saying nothing, when he has the opportunity, when they come at him with these responses, just like Peter in the courtyard when Jesus is arrested, and they go to Peter and say, you're one of his. You were with him. And Peter says, I I don't know the man. Peter denies knowing Christ in the same way Nicodemus, when he realizes, when, he put, when he's put in this place and he's told, are you, are you one of them? He's silent. In the story of both Joseph and of Nicodemus, there is tragedy, 
but there's also glory. There's tragedy in the sense that both of them are secret disciples. Is that even true discipleship, to be a follower of Christ in secret? They either have to choose worldly things or heavenly things. We don't know, but they either chose to be absent from that council meeting that condemned Jesus, or they decided to say nothing, afraid of what they had to lose, complicit in Jesus' death. But in both of these men, there's also glory, because Jesus' death did for them what his life could not. It takes away their fear. It releases them from this bondage of earthly things holding them down. It changes their perspective on what is truly important. They take all these connections, this wealth and this power and this influence that they have, and they go to Pilate and they say, give us his body so we can give him a proper burial, burial fit for a king. And Pilate lets them. They take everything that was holding them back and they use it to glorify Jesus. These two men fall somewhere between the power of Pilate, who sits in a place where he can make decisions about people's life and death. Do you understand that I have the power to either release you or condemn you, to have you crucified, he tells Jesus. Somewhere between Pilate and the passion of Barabbas, one who is violent, one who is an insurrectionist who stirs up the crowds. They're anxious to maintain their status and their standing, but they are drawn into this figure, this person of Christ. But when they're thrust into the spotlight, when the spotlight is on them, it's your time to say something. They're paralyzed and unable to speak. But in Jesus' death on the cross, they're bold. They go to Pilate. They ask for his body, and they give him a proper burial. But is this really discipleship? Is this true discipleship? Is being a disciple in secret or when it's convenient? Is this what Jesus is calling us to? Because all of us here this morning, we struggle with different situations where we have an opportunity to witness to our faith to say something about what we believe, to lead people toward Jesus, and we don't. Because that's awkward, and that's weird, and who does that? I don't want to talk to people about churchy stuff. They don't want to hear that, right? We give ourselves all these reasons why that's a bad idea, but yet every day we're faced with the opportunity of saying, do you know who Jesus is? Do you know what he's done for me? Let me tell you about it. And yet we're silent. There's really only one time, and Matt was shocked by this, I don't know why, but there's really only one time in school, anyway, that I got in big trouble. I did lots of little things, but one time I did something dumb. I was about 14, 15 years old, we were in English class, and I did not care for English, you know, all this reading books and stuff did nothing for me, I hated it, but in this particular class, I sat at the front of the class, not by choice, for probably some other reason, and we had a substitute teacher that day. And he was from a different part of the country, and so he spoke with a very strong accent that was not mine. And I made a joke about his accent that, in hindsight, was inappropriate. And I got the glare. You know the glare. 
Those of you that are parents, right? You see your kids do something, all you've got to do is give them the look and they know what it means. You have done something and said something that you perhaps should not have, right? So I got the glare from my teacher and I'm like, oh, I don't know if something bad's about to happen or if he's going to burst into laughter and this is going to be great. Well, obviously it wasn't the latter. He pointed to the door and I went. And there was this <gasps> in the classroom because I never got in trouble in school. Not, not only was somebody getting in trouble and called out into the hallway, it happened all the time, but I was getting called out into the hallway. And they were like, well, what did he do? What did he say? So I'm in the hallway and I'm waiting for him to come out and, and talk to me and I'm like, okay, this, this is bad. I don't know what to do. I've never done this before. So he came out and he's, you know, three inches from my face telling me how inappropriate that was and that really hurt his feelings and offended him. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I really... Didn't meet him for about 15 minutes. I could not apologize enough because he was saying things like principal's office, calling parents, you know, all those things. I was like, oh, what do I have to do to get out of this? So I quickly learned again that sometimes we shouldn't say things uh, that sometimes we choose to, to say. Sometimes shutting up is a great thing to do. In a modern context, Christianity, the faith that we claim, is sometimes viewed as being anti-intellectual. Have you heard that before? We want you to check your brains at the door. Whatever we tell you is the truth, you have no reason to question that, and you just need to absorb everything that you are taught and go and do as you're told. Hopefully that's not true, right? We invite you to bring your brains into worship and listen to what we're saying, and let's talk about it, let's figure it out. But sometimes that's how it's seen. A religion that completely ignores scientific or historical facts. It flies in the face of diversity or self-expression. We don't want you to think for yourselves. We all need to think the same thing, and it's whatever I tell you. Hopefully that's not where we are. It can sometimes be seen as clinging to the institution, right? It imposes its views that have been forevermore onto the people that are in the church today, and that's just what the church does. There is no conversation, is how it's sometimes seen. Sometimes it's seen as a set of practices, right? These Christians are people that do things. They go to church. That is the identity of a Christian. They go to church. That's it. Or they pray. Or they do this communion thing, right? The identity of a Christian is in what they do. And if I don't go to church, I must not be a Christian. And we equate it that way. Rather than understanding that followers of Christ are a people called by God, responding to God's grace, who are living into this kingdom. We're living into a kingdom that God has talked about, that Jesus showed us and talked to us about, that is put before us, that we know is coming, but is already here. That's who we are. And we're trying to figure it out as we go along. In the days of the early church, it was not unusual for followers of Christ to worship, to pray in private. Especially under the rule of emperors like Nero or Trajan, some of these really dominant rulers who said you must do things this way and this, this Christianity, this the way, has no part or place in what we do. Church historian Eusebius talks about great multitudes of Christians that are put to death in quite gruesome ways 
to make an example that if you go in some other direction than what we want you to do, you will be stopped. You will recant your faith, and you will worship the Roman gods. If you are unwilling to do either one of those two things, you will be put to death. And we will make an example of you so that other people don't think this is a good idea. This is the early church, at least in different times and places. The Apostle Paul has his fair share of struggles with some of this. If you know Paul's story, you know that he's persecuted, he's beaten, he's put in jail multiple times, he's tortured, anything short of actually killing him because they are desperate to stop him from spreading this nonsense that Jesus is the Son of God and he was raised again from the dead. Stop, Paul. Who do you think you are? Well, listen to what he says in one of his letters to the church in Philippi. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That is quite one resume you've built for yourself there, Paul. It sounds fantastic, unless you're a follower of Christ. (laughs) Yet, he says, whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Paul understands who he was. He was a great leader of the Pharisees, well-respected, had great wealth and power and influence, and when he understands who Christ is, he gives it all up. He says, my identity is not in any of those things. I will give it, it is rubbish, a good English word. I will give it all up. It is meaningless because my identity is in Christ. And I will take whatever comes with that. And he does. While Joseph and Nicodemus may not have been willing to speak up and try to save Jesus from crucifixion, they both come forward when nobody else would. When Jesus' disciples are nowhere to be seen, They are the ones who come forward and go to Pilate and they ask for his body so he can have a proper burial. A burial quite appropriate for a king. Now, while early Christian writings are hard to authenticate and we don't know where the evidence might be to support this, it is suggested that both Joseph and Nicodemus spent the rest of their lives, as Paul did, as public disciples of Christ recognizing that surely this was the Son of God. Now, sometimes speaking up can get us in trouble. Sometimes being silent really is the right thing to do. But when it comes to our faith, when it comes to our identity in Christ, we are to be bold. Joseph and Nicodemus 
went boldly. They went boldly to Pilate and they said, we need to get his body off that cross and we need to give him a proper burial and we are going to make sure it is fit for a king because that's who Jesus is to us. Remember Peter, Peter who said, I don't know the man. Peter spent the rest of his life boldly going and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and what Jesus had done in his life at great personal risk to himself. Paul, Barnabas, and others spoke boldly to the crowds and in the synagogues, witnessing to their faith, witnessing to a resurrected Christ. And they did not care what anybody did to them. It wasn't going to be stopped, which is why we're here today. May we, as the body of Christ, as people who have our identity in Christ and not in worldly things, May we go boldly. May we go and bear witness to our faith by word and by deed, by telling people who Jesus is and what he's done for us, by living out our faith in tangible ways, pointing to the cross, absolutely, but pointing beyond the cross to the resurrection, pointing beyond the cross to the hope that we have in Christ, because our story doesn't end with the cross. It doesn't end with a dead Jesus. It moves beyond the cross to a resurrected life in Christ, to the kingdom that is coming but not yet here, the kingdom in which we are living into, that we struggle with, that we wrestle with each and every day as people of faith, a place in which we will live for all of eternity, a place where Jesus is our Messiah and our King forever and ever. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, God of mercy, God of all goodness, when we fail to have the words to speak, speak through us and in spite of us. When it is time to be silent, Speak on behalf of us. When it is time that we are chosen to speak but we can't find the right words, speak for us. Give us the words to speak. Give us the courage to go boldly, to take every opportunity that we have to proclaim our faith, to proclaim our trust in you, to show people, to show this world around us just how good and gracious and wonderful you are, but whatever cost might come with it, we give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.